Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to our event, our Sydney Ideas event, The Future of Building. My name is Matthew Aitchison, and I'm the director of the Innovation and Applied Design Lab at the University of Sydney's School of Architecture, Design and Planning. Tonight, as you may have already read, we'll be launching a new book, this book here, and holding a panel discussion. And I'll introduce our expert panellists shortly. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country, as we also pay respect to elders past and present. I'd also like to uh, uh, welcome our distinguished guests tonight. Uh, we have an apology from Senator Zed Zazelia, Assistant Minister for Science, Jobs and Innovation, who is unable to, to attend tonight because it's a sitting week of Parliament, and I think that's a pretty good excuse as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we also welcome Jennifer Kay, General Manager of Industry Research and Investment at the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, and also Jenny Flood, who's here tonight with Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, also, Dr. Chris Armstrong, Director of the Office of New South Wales Chief Scientist, who have provided generous funding towards our research and the prototype that you see at the front. I haven't met Chris in person yet. Chris, very welcome. Uh, we've also had a huge response from industry tonight, um, and I'd like to say a, a, a personal and a heartfelt thanks to all of you for coming along. Many uh, old and new faces in the room. Thank you very much. I'll start now with our panellist uh, introduction. Uh, I'll start over on my right uh, with uh, Professor Kerry London, um, who is Professor of Built Environment and Urban Transformation at Western Sydney University, where she's also Deputy Dean of the School of Engineering, Computing and Mathematics. Kerry has held several senior leadership and management roles in universities across Australia, previously at the University of South Australia and RMIT. She has an international research reputation and is considered a leader in construction supply chain theory and practice. Her work also focuses on adoption of innovative technologies in construction. She's published more than 160 peer-reviewed publications, won over $3.5 million in competitive research funding and supervised 11 PhD students since uh, 2003, which is a major achievement right there. I can say that from my own experience. She currently is Chief Investigator on four ARC grants and Kerry's breadth is also demonstrated in her role as Chair of the Lean Construction Institute in Australia. Next I'd like to introduce Andrew Stevens, who is the Chairman of Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre Limited, a key plank of the Australian Government's uh, Industry Growth Centres Initiative and part of a $248 million program to establish growth centres across six key industrial sectors of the national economy. Andrew is also director of Stockland Group Limited, MYOB Group Limited, Thorne Group Limited, the Greater Western Sydney Giants, and CEDA. Andrew was formerly chief operating officer of Price Waterhouse Management Consulting in the Asia Pacific region, 
and the managing director of IBM in Australia and New Zealand. He's a member of the Professional Conduct Oversight Committee of CAANZ, the Chief of the Defence Force's Gender Equality Advisory Board, Male Champions of Change, a group of CEOs and directors working to make gender equality a reality. Anne Beim is, uh, Anna Beim, I should say, is Professor of Architecture at the Royal Dan Danish Academy of Fine Arts School of Architecture in the wonderful Copenhagen. Anna is head of SINARC, the Centre for Industrialised Architecture. This is a centre which bridges the gap between architectural education, the construction industry and the architectural profession. Anna is also co-chair of the graduate program Settlement Ecology and Tectonics. Anna's research includes contemporary and historical theories and practices of building culture and tectonics. And she has a particular focus on ecology, architectural quality, the building industry, materials, construction principles and detailing. Anna is the recipient of numerous uh, research funding grants, a prolific PhD supervisor and has published widely. In addition to being the co-author on the book we are launching tonight, Anna and some members of her team are also guests of our lab this week at the University of Sydney, where we've had some great knowledge exchange already, and I just want to thank uh, the, the team who are out here. Where are you? Welcome. Last, but very much not least, is Daryl Patterson, who is a graduate of the University of Auckland School of Architecture and currently leads operational excellence initiatives for the Lend-Lease property business. This work includes the creation of governance models, the establishment of a national procurement function, and the creation of the Lend-Lease Innovation Lab. Daryl joined Lend-Lease over 25 years ago, and in that time, he's worked on the front line of building design and construction management. Daryl is also well known in the industry for leading innovative projects, such as his leading role in bringing CLT to Australia in the shape of the Forte building uh, that was built in Melbourne in 2013, which was, at the time, the world's tallest CLT building. Among his many roles at present, Daryl is project lead on a major research initiative with the University of Sydney and our lab. This project has been made possible by a generous grant from the Australian Government's Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. And as many of you will know, the CRC program supports industry-led collaborations between um, uh, industry, researchers and the community. The CRC project, of which Daryl is lead, is entitled Innovation and Advanced, uh, Advanced Multi-Story Housing Manufacture. And among many other outcomes, has led to the prototype that you saw in the forecourt uh, outside tonight. So if you'll join me uh, again in welcoming our guests, I'd like to offer them a round of applause. Before we get to the content of tonight's program, I need to offer several rounds of thanks, as is customary. I'd like to thank the Sydney Ideas team and our colleagues from marketing. I'd like to thank our internal lab team, uh, in particular, uh, Sarah Breen Lovett and Rachel Cooper for organising this event, along with our uh, School of Architecture, Design and Planning executive, uh, members of which are here tonight, and our engagement team. I'd also like to make a, 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 a very heartfelt thanks to our whole CRC project team, which I discovered was too big to list on one slide. So uh, what we did do is list the team uh, that uh, was involved in building the prototype outside. Uh, in particular, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. David Tapias-Mona, who's the designer, and also uh, a special thanks to the uh, DMAF team 
uh, who built the prototype that you see outside. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the Charles Perkins Centre for allowing us to uh, interrupt their uh, general operations and build that big thing out in front of their building. Finally, uh, I'd also like to make a big thanks to all of the contributors uh, to this book that I'm going to introduce very shortly. Uh, we, have, we are fortunate to have some of the 18 co-authors in the room. Can I ask you to put up your hands? Yes, we've got a couple up the back, a couple down the front, spread out, thinly dispersed throughout the crowd. So, we now turn to the first part of our evening's content, which is our book launch. I'd like to spend the next five minutes or so giving you an introduction to it, and I do this not just as a plug, uh, a bold move to try and sell more of those books you saw out there on that table, but because it's subject, prefab housing is a really good place to start our discussion around the future of building. At its core, this book is about better understanding why the idea of prefab housing has offered so much promise for so long, but has in real terms delivered so little. For those of you who are not familiar with the history of prefab, let me give you a one-minute summary. For well over a century, a largely disconnected group of entrepreneurs, developers, industrialists, architects, engineers, designers, builders and inventors have found in prefab, and particularly prefab housing, the sparkle of an idea that could solve many of the persistent problems in the building industry. Most of the ventures launched by these groups were done so with some fanfare and much hyperbole. Although some of these early promises were, the first ventured, or were first ventured over a century ago, many are still familiar today, and they include cost reduction through industrialization and rises, uh, or felt rises in productivity, an increased quality of the product because they ma are made under the controlled conditions of the factory, that they offered particular solutions for difficult problems such as remoteness or awkward sites or material or labor shortages that they also offered faster delivery times because all processes are controlled and less exposed to the vagaries of the notorious building site with rain and traffic and all of those nasty things. They also offered more convenience and better value for end users, or so the promise went. Today, these foundational promises are joined by new promises that include the offer of a more sustainable, less wasteful building practice, greater degrees of flexibility, the so-called mass customization. And finally, as a potentially necessary solution that can deliver the vast quantity of building we will need in this next century. Now, these ventures would start and each group would pick up the idea as though it were new, often but not always incognizant of all that had done, been done before. But with the exception of a few standout countries and regions, which we cover in the book, such as Scandinavian countries, Japan and, and even parts of the USA, this dream of the factory-made house as one eminent historian of the subject has referred to it, has remained, remained somewhat elusive. From today's standpoint, and looking back across the past century, prefab housing has been a kind of recurrent dream. Every decade or so, it was redreamt from scratch, but with a curious kind of amnesia, which saw many new ventures start and often fail for exactly the same reasons as those before them. So, this cycle I've sketched, I think, shines a light on the central question of this book. If prefab housing makes so much sense and offers so many benefits, why hasn't it already happened? Why has prefab housing not spread from those few highly industrialized countries and not become the dominant paradigm all over the world?
At this point in time, you may be thinking that I am a staunch critic of prefab and why did I even bother writing a book about it? But I can tell you that I'm not. I am, however, a skeptic. To me, the question of why it has not delivered on its promises is a question worth asking. And in the work we do with our projects and partners and in our research, it's also a problem, I think, worth solving. And perhaps I might go as far as to say it's a problem that we can no longer afford not to solve. This book attempts to mark the end point of this Groundhog Day phenomenon. We want to draw a very thick line under this strange dance in the building industry. So how did we propose to do this? First, we started with the foundations in the literature, practice, current concepts and case studies on top of which our study builds. This analysis illustrated 17 historical barriers or impediments that have hindered the uptake or success of prefab. Having better understood these problems, we postulated a reformed problem-solving approach which could finally overcome such problems. To finish the book, and because it's always easier to be critical and propose nothing, we put ourselves on the line and listed 10 opportunities for the future, which we think, if correctly harnessed, have the potential to unlock some of the more millennial claims of prefab and its various supporters. Reviewing the literature, though, showed us that it was not enough to simply reiterate the excellent work that had come before, and I need to point out there is a lot of excellent work that came before. We need to, needed to make the book appeal to a non-specialist, non-academic readership to ensure that the lessons learned over the past century are disseminated more widely than before. Thinking that there are people out there, like me, who don't have a whole week or a whole day to read the book from cover to cover, we wrote it so that one could understand the major thrust of the book in one hour or even one minute. So I'm closing this first part of tonight's uh, talk. I want to give you the one-minute version. And we boiled this down to three major points. Prefab looks simple on the outside, but it's really very complicated. That's pretty simple. This paradox alone has led many ventures astray. Our book shows a more complicated picture, a certain unruliness that must be taken into account if prefab is to reach its promise. The book shows that it's possible to understand and visualize this complexity as a pattern which, once seen, we think, is very hard to unsee. Two, there is no single right way to do prefab, but many possibilities. The move towards a greater industrialization of housing is not linear or exclusive. There is room for many players, big and small, slow and fast, and many, many different approaches. The path to overcoming past failures and generating appropriate solutions in the future will be founded on an integrated and holistic view of the complexity and constraints of housing, which make it very different to other sectors. Third, fresh and balanced thinking is required for prefab to be successful. And you may think, well, that's a necessity for everything in the world. But the history of prefab is one of extremes. On the one hand, we have utilitarian solutions, or on the other hand, conceptual solutions. The future, we believe, will be one of mediation and calculated trade-offs. It will involve a balancing of design value and efficient production systems. This will lead to the determination of appropriate solutions rather than the solutions in search of problems ap approach of the current paradigm. Our emphasis will shift to proce process rather than product, favoring imperfect application over conceptual purity, commercial viability over ideology, substance over style, and innovation over pure invention. So, that was the one-minute version. I hope everyone's uh, enthralled enough to go out there and, and buy it, or at least give it a thumb through. 
Without further ado, this brings us to the next chapter of tonight's proceedings, our panel discussion, The Future of Buildings. But now that I've publicly launched our book, I'd like you to also join me in thanking my uh, co-authors who are here in the room. Thank you. So just before we begin, I'd like to start with a little primer to our discussion tonight. Take a moment to ask a really fundamental question, perhaps the big question. Why should we care about the future of buildings? Let's put aside momentarily the blindingly obvious stuff, like we mostly all live in buildings and work in buildings. We need buildings to survive. Buildings are intrinsic to the meaning of our lives. They bind our culture, memory and our society, our economy. They bring people together like this lecture room tonight. Rather, I'd like to frame in a very, very open way a series of reasons that I think we should uh, pay closer attention to buildings. For example, if you care about affordability and accessibility of housing, then you should care about the future of buildings. If you care about climate change and sustainability and the fact that buildings consume 40% of the world's total primary energy and account for 24% of global CO2 emissions, then you should care about buildings. If you care about population growth, overcrowding and urbanisation, then you'll agree we need a better strategy than we presently have for building. If you care about health and the dignity of human life for both young and old in countries near and far, then we think you need to care about buildings. If you care about quality, value and design, like many of my colleagues over at the School of Architecture, Design and Planning do, then you need to care about buildings. If your interest is in safety and industrial relations and the growing importance of these areas in our industry, then you need to care more about buildings. If your interest is around the economy, then you need to think about the sheer size of building. It's a $10 trillion global industry and it's a sleeping giant. If you care about technology, then you might be interested to note that the construction industry has a notoriously low technology uptake and it has only recently seriously begun a digitalization process that is now de rigueur in many other industries. And finally, if you care about innovation and R&D as I do, you might care about the low level of investment in R&D in the sector and why we've not seen meaningful disruption in the industry as we have in many other contemporary industries. Finally, before crossing to our panellists, I do feel it would be wise to offer a couple of qualifications around what type of future we will be discussing here tonight. And I hope we don't disappoint those of you who are hoping for more of this, some kind of futurism, the now familiar science fiction such as Blade Runner or the backdrop to the next hit Netflix series. Tonight is not about a battle over which fiction and which technological fantasy will take the day. Tonight we aim to look into the next decade. Rather than a science fiction, our assembled experts and our discussion is based on a better understanding of the present, the immediate past and current trends. Our panellists tonight, I'm happy to say, are experts in these matters and for those of you who came in late, let me just uh, reintroduce our panellists. Professor Kerry London, Andrew Stevens, Professor Anna Beim, and Daryl Patterson. So, welcome. Let me just start by saying a couple of weeks back I asked everyone uh, who's on the panel tonight to send me their top three challenges for the future of building. Now, we're going to circle back to those top three challenges uh, at the end of tonight's discussion, but I'd really like to just kick off in the present for the moment, and I'd like to ask our panel what they think are the very big problems today, indeed the biggest problems. So let me start with you, Kerry. I rattled off a bunch of thematic areas just now. Did any of those catch your ear? 
Thanks, Matthew, and, and thanks for the invitation um, to come tonight. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Um, of course, there's a couple of those areas um, you know, that I'm particularly interested in, um, but I'd probably like to focus a little bit on technology and yep. adoption of technology. Over the last decade or so, the, the work that I've done has really focused on probably three major technology areas. Um, the first one was building information modelling, um, more recently, um, off-site manufacturing or prefabrication, and um, just in the last year, collaborative robotics. Mm -hmm. So, um, although quite disparate areas, um, and often there's quite a lot of differences between those three, there are some actually there are some common themes that mm -hmm. run through them. So, I mean, many of you in the, in, in the audience, you know, are probably well aware of, of the nature of the structure of the industry, you know, the small to medium-sized enterprises um, and the difficulties that that brings with trying to mobilise um, significant change around, you know, new technologies. So, the, um, the interesting themes um, that I have particularly looked at are often guided by um, social science approaches to exploring how people adopt and, and face new challenges around technologies. So supply chain integration, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, um, has been uh, you know, something that I've explored for probably you know, 15 years or so since my PhD. Um, but how do you get that? That's, that's the biggest issue. Uh -huh. And so um, the more recent work I did was around collaborative practice models. And I think we, we all agree that we might be exploring that a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. great. So. Okay, thanks, Karen. Andrew. I, I'm um, here and I'm a bit nervous being <laughs> a member of this panel because I'm not an architect and I'm not a professor or anything. I, I chair the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre, which is uh, an initiative of the federal government to work and help the manufacturing industry to become more competitive. And so we've been studying for three years the manufacturing sector and its components and trying to work out, rather than what's not working, do less of that, we're trying to work out what's working and do more of that. And so my approach to this question of what is, what's the biggest challenge uh, comes from that that background. Um, I, I would say that the biggest challenge, and while your list, Matthew, didn't actually mention the customer, uh -huh. but from the customer's point of view, I think the biggest challenge is compromise. Because it seems that from what I've, and I met Matthew when I was doing a consultation session in 2015 to set up the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre, and he came and shared his passion and the possibilities on this, and, and quite frankly, I was really impressed with that. But the reality is that the, the compromise is on time, cost and quality. You know, the delays, the time, elapsed time period, the costs involved, and I would say the design compromises that customers has to, have to make to acquire something means that we have a substandard outcome for the customer. And while we can focus on how do we turn that around, I think starting with that point and that premise is, is, is the big is the big context here because the construction industry is the second least advanced in terms of productivity improvement of all sectors in the economy. It's number two in terms of least productive and least advanced. And I know in the manufacturing sector that manufacturing businesses that operated the way that the construction and building industry operated would not be surviving today. Mm. They would not. 
And the other thing that's interesting is when we compared a few years ago a project I was involved in that McKinsey published called Compete to Prosper, we compared the relative competitiveness of 12 sectors, major sectors in the Australian economy. And in construction, we were equal with the competitiveness and productivity levels in that 10 billion, trillion, sorry, that $10 trillion industry that Matthew talked about. So the economic impact here is not only a, a, a customer impact, but also it says in terms of national prosperity, there is a $10 trillion industry globally that is available for successful innovation. And I think a big part of it is in this topic of prefabrication, manufacturing, transforming construction. So I, I think that, that, that's the two bookends for me, Matthew. Okay. Thanks for that, Andrew. Anna? Yeah, not being from Sydney or Australia, coming from abroad and not knowing much about the local uh, economy in that sense, uh, I think there's a lot of um, comparisons to the European construction industry and the, the Western world in general in in Australia and US, probably. Um, but coming from a background with um, having been part of the research institute in Denmark, actually working with the productivity of the building industry to begin with, and then over the past 14 years, sort of having brought that agenda into the architectural research environment in Denmark, which was, in, to begin with, very, very difficult, still is, but from, from a different perspective today. We sort of, or I sort of realized over the years that having discussed many of the things just touched upon here um, by you two, um, that in case we really want to change the mindset or address some of the deeper questions in terms of how does technology uh, transfer um, evolve, uh, how do we actually, if, if it, not only if, when we are going to change the construction industry in, in the future, how can we as architects contribute to that by different means than the general economical or social economical sort of um, approach. And in the past couple of years, we have sort of made this um, upside down, how should I say, questioning in terms of instead of um, working on the little, um, how, how should I say, high-end high questions of how to improve little by little in the existing construction industry, we're sort of trying to sort of back into the, the very early understanding of industrialized construction and the material use. And that, of course, is, is very, how should I say, in one way it could be criticized from the point of view that um, why do you want to work with uh, very plain materials and very simple structures, um, but that's from the sustainability perspective, uh, knowing that also the building industry, as you just mentioned earlier, to begin with, Matthew, that it's one of the big um, CO2, um, how do you say, footprint um, markers in, in general. So we have a huge responsibility in terms of taking that on and, and changing it. So what I'm trying to say is that the fact that we have a growing global population and we have a need for more resources also spent or used in the construction industry, we have to think in ways that couple both the sort of, how should I say, the very core understanding of construction and use of materials with the very high-end understanding of manufacturing 
um, and high advanced technologies. Okay, thank you, Anna. Darren. Uh, so, I mean, the nine things on the list are all very, very important and uh, all worthy of a lot of consideration. Um, I think coming back to the $10 trillion industry that we've been speaking about, it delivers fantastic things for many people all around the world. It's, it's quite incredible what it can do. Uh, we get buildings like the Sydney Opera House, we get accommodation for billions of people. But the reality is that $10 trillion industry is expensive, uh, it's highly unpredictable, and it's extremely wasteful. And as a consequence, its product is becoming less and less affordable. And we're seeing this in cities all around the Western world, and uh, indeed the entire world, where there's one housing crisis after another being talked about. Uh, there's buildings of every scale and type reaching points of inaffordability. And any of us who have tried to go through the process of creating your own home or extension or renovation has also experienced this fact that construction is a very, very expensive process. So for me, the top of that list is affordability, but it's a consequence of the way the industry functions. It's the lack of innovation, it's the lack of a switch toward an industrialised model uh, and the lack of technology that's kept us where we are while the rest of the world has moved forward, as Andrew's described in the manufacturing sector. So it's not something we're going to leave uh, alone. There's a number of people in this room who are working with me and indeed there's a large number of people around the world at the moment who are persecuting this idea that we can change this. And we have to approach it with some new paradigms because I think the industry has kind of run out of energy in terms of addressing the affordability uh, question hmm. on conventional means. And that approach to date has been things like shrinking the product. You can mm -hmm. only take a house size down so far or a block of land down so far before you reach some natural limits. Unless we're going to start shrinking humans, shrinking the product doesn't answer the question of affordability. <laughs> so it's time for some new thoughts on the matter. And I think that's where we get to the, the topic of industrialisation or prefabrication or off-site and the opportunities that digitalisation might be offering us to help on that affordability journey. So it seems to me that there's general agreement across the panel that there is indeed this kind of um, technology issue in construction, that there is low productivity, that there is a change required. Okay, We came in here probably assuming, or at least I did, uh, from uh, that introduction to the book that I spoke about. But I want to ask the panel, why is it perhaps that we haven't seen the type of innovation that we all think there needs to be? I want to ask you first, Daryl. I think there's a series of reasons for that. I think there is some cultural issues to examine in the construction industry. Um, I think the kind of people who are attracted to construction are fantastic problem solvers. And uh, in my time in construction, I've met a lot of fantastic individuals who, when confronted with the challenge of delivering large, complex projects, they rise to it. Um, but if you think about the way that's happening, it's a very inefficient process to be solving problems at the construction site. Yeah. We should be solving those problems much earlier in the, in the value chain. They shouldn't be arising at the construction site. But if you've got an industry that attracts a culture of people who love to solve the chaos at the construction site, it's not in their interests to solve it up front. So I do wonder if we've got to go through some cultural change, some generational change, before we have the right mix of people saying, we no longer want to solve problems at the coalface, we want to solve them up in the value chain earlier. And talking about a culture change, Kerry 
who do you think should lead that culture change in the industry? Yeah, I was quite interested in, in some of the earlier comments, um, you know, around you know, the customer and the customer, mm. and we should be focusing on, on what the customer wants. But actually the customer and the client, you know, it's a many-headed beast or whatever. <laughs> um, so, you know, we probably need to know a lot more about, you know, the nature of our clients. And some step up and lead and are able to um, initiate change. So we see, we do see some larger clients and, and developers and um, government agencies who uh, um, see that as their role uh, for altruistic or because you know they can see the economic benefits. And so probably the the five case studies that I've looked at quite closely. One of the you know guiding principles was that there there had to be a leader and and someone who catalyzed and brought a cluster or a network of of companies together who had that same goal you know and uh, attitude towards innovation that we were talking about earlier but um, you know i I think there isn't enough of that to be honest in the industry um, uh, and it it may be that it's too big a job. But what, mm. Kerry, uh, I, I'm just going to make a scenario here and say uh, I'm, I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, and I might say, this is not what I would say, but it's a scenario. Uh, that's not <laughs> I'm not sure what he's going to hit me uh -oh, with. This could be good. Uh -oh. This is the could be good. Here it comes. Get ready for it. <laughs> yeah, get ready. This is happening early. Flick uh, it. <laughs> I'm an academic, I'm a researcher. I can't change these things. That's not my job. That's the job of the government or that's the job of the developer. <laughs> Why is that not the case? I mean, how will simply making teams like that change some of these endemic things which we have very few levers to interact with? As academics or, sorry? Well, I suppose uh, my understanding of what you were saying about who would lead that change and how that would happen would be if we collaborate together. Um, Collaboration, yes, but you also need um, some quite uh, strong leaders in yeah. the industry to do that and and we need clients or developers or, or yeah. whatever to to step up and make those changes yeah okay yeah. if you if you parallels from the the aerospace industry for example how do we end up with a joint strike fighter well it's important that you have a Lockheed Martin at the top of the chain who says we we are going to uh, and the make and make versus buy decision is well and truly established in all business and well and truly within the manufacturing sector. And so if Lockheed Martin says we're going to design for the NATO alliance a joint strike fighter and we're going to source componentry for that uh, in a way that's different to how all previous aircraft have been made, then it requires someone who is like an integrator or a, a principal at the top. And so I think large developers um, are in... A good place, but to move alone, mm. if you turn around and say, "Well, where are the where are the suppliers?" Mm. and there's no one there, then it's not going to be a very viable model. So I think it's going to have to be, as Kerry's talked about, somehow there's going to be coalitions of yeah. uh, developers, uh, architects, uh, business mo uh, um, uh, b building products manufacturers, uh, etc., that are going to say, "We, we want to make a mark here because." What's the potential? The potential is far more significant 
than you see in the Tesla company in automotive and batteries. If someone says, an, uh, an entrepreneur says, we have cracked the code on manufacturing in, the in buildings, in houses, then the potential upside is a multiple of what we see, I see in automotive and battery, as an example. So this could be a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And the question is, who's going to take that on? Oh. But I think it's someone at the top of the chain has to do that if you look at other models that have worked. The other thing that we've seen from our work is a different approach is required. And what I mean by that is that there's two blind spots that generally people have about manufacturing. One is that manufacturing equals production. And the Apple iPhone that you have in your pocket, if it's an iPhone 10 or X, costs on the shop floor 6% of what you pay when you buy it. Six. So the components that go in there in production are 6% of the sale price. The rest is in design and in service. And so the manufacturing business, to be successful in Australia and elsewhere, has something that starts at design, all integrated through to production and to service, which isn't repair, but it's about service in the process. And so that understanding of that has sort of formed my view on this, which says we've got to approach this from customer-oriented. And if BCG is right, who did a report for the World Economic Forum on this exact topic, said that 75% of, of the elapsed time and 50% of the cost could be saved through proper adoption of techniques in prefabrication. And I don't like the term prefabrication because it implies production. And companies that are in the production business and are trying to lower cost are generally not successful in today's world. We haven't found one in Australia, a manufacturer, who is on a cost leadership play who has a sizable gro and growing market share in the world. There's not one we've found. Conversely, we've found companies like CSL and Cochlear and companies that makes components for the Joint Strike Fighter and others who have a vibrant business who compete on performance and value differentiation and they're design rich and they have integrated software that digitizes the process. But you, again, now replay the tapes on what you've observed in construction and building, and, and we are light years from that, absolutely light years from mm. it. It's so far removed, it's, it's not even viable, which I think is your point, Matthew, about previous incarnations in this amnesia that somehow we forget all that stuff. So I think there's got to be head of chain and significant players and I think there's also got to be a different model that says, why don't we come at this from a totally different perspective, applying what we've learned elsewhere, so that we could achieve what the cotton gin did to uh, thread and cotton manufacture at the start of the Industrial Revolution? Because that's, that's the scale of what we're talking about. I find that a very interesting uh, proposition, which I'm going to come back to, this learning from other sectors. But I want to just quickly follow up on this top of the chain thing. I, I, Daryl, I'm going to... There was a very obvious pass to you. There is uh, Lend-Lease as one of the largest global uh, property and construction businesses. Are you at the top of the chain? Is that the way you see yourself? Uh, I think our, our business obviously leads in many sectors mm. that we're in uh, and, and our message very strongly to our investors uh, and to our staff and to the uh, customers we serve is that we're an integrated business and I think that's very important for trying to make these kind of changes. Now we're integrated to the extent we're in development, um, property management, design, construction. We're not integrated deeper into the supply chain so we still have that issue that we need to carry a supply chain with us. Uh, we've made some 
interesting investments to actually be in parts of the supply chain, but that's generally not our business model. Uh, I agree with the comments that there needs to be a leader at the top of the chain, or leaders who are leaders. inclined to think the same way and to make the same kind of choices. Um, but I also think there needs to be some externalities in terms of um, new competitive threats, because we've had it a little bit unchallenged in terms of the delivery model for a long time. And uh, David Chandler, who's in the audience tonight, sent me a very interesting article last week about the number of startups coming out of Europe in the construction space. And the numbers are quite staggering. And if you took them from a European perspective and made some guesses about uh, a global perspective, there's potentially more than 3 million technology startups targeting the construction sector globally at the moment. Mm. That's unprecedented. If you went back 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have found 500, yeah. if 100. So you've got this whole wave of people thinking about how to capture some of that uh, multi-billion dollar value that Andrew's speaking about by attacking all these inefficiencies that are in our industry and using technology to do that. Now those might be absolute minnows where they might evolve to be some quite large players or they might end up being consumed by some large technology players. Yeah. And I suspect that externality is one of the things that will bring the attention that's needed to the leaders in the industry. Yeah. Um, before we come back to some of those uh, questions about other uh, sectors and what we can learn from them and also this proliferation of startups that you're talking about here, I just want to get Anna's uh, reading on this issue about cultural change within the construction industry or the building industry more generally and who you think uh, might lead that change. I think that's a very difficult question. Um, but just to start in a, at a different end, the, the former question about innovation and um, the lack of innovation in the, in the construction industry, to some extent I totally agree, and on the other hand I disagree, from the point that uh, construction, if we look back in time, has changed drastically over uh -huh. the past 100 years. And... Um, and also, uh, it also depends on what kind of innovation we're talking about. Is it oh. technological innovation? Is it innovation uh, concerning the various processes or the organizational setup of the, of the, um, of the stakeholders, uh, whatever? Um, so I think this whole question about innovation is really critical in terms of in, in which way we sort of address it, address it or place it uh, as, as um, how should I say, as a problem. Um, because I... Yeah, just to finish that, I think that within, in construction, at least in Denmark, has, has developed uh, over the past 30 years in a, in a way that much of the high-end technological um, improvements have been taken out of the statistics in the, um, in the Danish statistics. So it goes into the manufacturing and production statistics. So what is left for construction is always a difficult site and, and mm -hmm. difficulties on, on, the, on the contractors' part. Mm -hmm. so, that's, yeah. so, so, when we're, so when we're discussing the numbers, it's, it's always have, you always have this sort of dark side to the numbers, and we really have to be aware of that when, when discussing this, because otherwise we may be going down a, a wrong track. But as for the, the question you asked, I mean, who's going to take on this change, this cultural change? I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's a common um, or collective responsibility. Um, and I think that the, the, the last, some of the last comments you came up with um, 
it, I think the end user is, is a very, very critical um, point because we, we cannot improve the construction industry. It's like, I mean, who, who else, um, who in this auditorium would care about how, how does Apple, uh, how do you say, um, mount the various pa technical parts yeah. in their phone? They don't care. Nope. They just want a proper device for, for, for their needs. And that's the same thing in housing. And I think we have to look at it in a much broader perspective. Some people may want a very smart house, a very high, high technologically driven house, like the space uh, <laughs> shuttle, yeah. I don't know. And other peoples don't. And I also think we have to consider what is meant by smart, because some of the, how should I say, vernacular constructions were smart in a very subtle, yeah. to, some, to some people, primitive way, but actually they serve many of the uh, environmental uh, problems or uh, the, the climate change problems we are facing at this point. So it, I think we have to be very careful that we don't look at it as a technological problem. It's, it's much deeper rooted in an understanding of how do we as humans want to live mm -hmm. um, in our houses. I, th I think that's a very good point and I think... Uh you know, it's certainly a point we make in the book as well is that um, the focus on innovation can often get railroaded by the question of technology and it's good to be quite nuanced and, and I guess introduce those other f metrics uh, around what kinds of innovation is it social innovation, cultural innovation. Um, but on that issue, it is a rather thorny question and it does play to the heart of this issue around industrialization that we're discussing here tonight, which and in the book we do propose this, that a building is a particular kind of problem. And it's a particular kind of problem that's different to other problems. And yet, when we think about the kinds of progress that we'd like to achieve in construction or indeed in building, we often go out and compare them with other industries. And indeed, that's happened many times already tonight. Uh, so the aerospace industry is a, is a great example that we'd compare it to, the automotive industry. Uh, is a great example that's uh, had a very long history of comparison with, uh, with, with buildings and construction. So I want to ask generally, and my first question goes to Andrew, what do you think we can learn from these other industrial sectors when it comes to building? I, I think the first thing is that those examples you use and, the, and keep rolling through the list, they're approaching the problem with a different mindset. So I think the first thing is the mindset that they're, uh, with which they're approaching the challenge. And, I, and I'm a, by the way, I'm an optimist. I'm not here to bash the construction industry. I'm actually trying to somehow I I get a bit of an emotional reaction from people to say, actually, why don't we do something about this? Let's really get stuck in. Mm. So every, for me, every threat has an equal and opposite opportunity. And therefore, if you take a different mindset to the problem, then I think you may well come up with an answer that is, or an approach and a process that's different to those who have done before. It's at the heart of innovation, I think. Yeah. And so I think the first thing is there's a different mindset. The second one is that where we see really successful manufacturers here who are the world leader in their category or number two on a worldwide scale, and there's about 2,000 of them in Australia, then we see examples where there has been a process orientation to how people have gone about the achievement of the customer value. Mm -hmm. And the process orientation in aerospace is a bit different, but there's some similarities with medtech. And if you go to food and agri-business, there's some different ones again. But 
what we've seen, because advanced manufacturing, there's elements of advanced manufacturing in almost every sector. And so in food and agribusiness, med tech and pharma, mining equipment, technology, and keep going through the, all the other growth centres uh, and other sectors of the economy, you see the way in which process has been brought to the problem. And to me, that your, 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 well, it was the three-minute summary, Matthew, or the other one, but your one that said biz, new business models and a whole-of-business approach are essential for future success, right? And I absolutely agree with that because, and I think that's a mindset and that can come from other sectors. So, of interest, you mentioned automotive. If you go inside, so Cochlear made an, uh, an acquisition of a hearing company in Sweden, and when they went and looked at all the engineering capability there, almost everybody came from automotive, from Saab and from Volvo. And if you look right through many advanced manufacturing companies, there's automotive capability because manufacturing at that scale and that quality consistently is very, very difficult. And therefore, those companies, because if you think you're going to have a cochlear implant embedded in your brain, you better make sure that the company you're dealing with is the best in the world. You don't want the low-cost option in that case, right? That's so right. that's their value proposition. <laughs> so you want the best capability in that stuff. Well, I think that's the same approach, that the business model and a whole-of-business approach that comes from, informed from, and I think diversity, I'm a complete believer in diversity, that it, there's not one size, ah, just go automotive, go aerospace, go medtech, go mm. agribusiness, it doesn't matter. We've got to approach it and bring people in from outside because open innovation, I think, is going to help us solve this problem. Correct. And realise this opportunity. Carrie. Um, I would not disagree with... <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do that. Um, but the, um, you know, the focus on process is, is, one, is one way. But I think when you touched on there are a number of different sectors that do a number of different great things or whatever... Um, you know, about 15 years ago in, in the academic world, um, there was a huge wave all around the world around, um, you know, this lovely concept of supply chain integration and supply chain yes. management. So it's not, you know, it's not new. Um, the construction researchers, uh, project management researchers, were, were very enamoured by, you know, the Japanese and the approach there. And everyone said the solution was, you know, we will just pick that up and plonk it across our industry. And without understanding a little bit deeper about what the industry actually really looked like, it's a very naive approach, you know. And, and I think you touched on that a little bit. We need to understand the economic drivers, you know, the structure, the basic structure of our industry. It, they, they differ. There are different parts to our industry as well. Um, there are leaders there who work in a, in a different space and there are a bunch of other organisations, you know, and they're mostly small to medium-sized enterprises. So we have to think, you know, a little bit um, cleverer about how we bring some of these things together. You know, that's, you know, so that's understanding mm. where is it possible to make innovation, where is it possible to make efficiencies and changes in the industry and those process improvements you're talking about. But without that deeper understanding and the analytics around, you know, the economics um, that sits under the vast number of supply chains, it's very difficult to simply say we're going to make change, unless you're a large lend lease. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
but even you have at the bottom end of your same chain, chain same challenges and exactly. they they feed up yeah and we just can't airbrush over those can we yeah no. No, and I think what you're talking about is we're, we're, our supply chain, it's really comprised of cottage industries, right? It's, yes. it's not like the consolidation you see in most of the manufacturing sectors where there's far fewer players, they've achieved a certain level of scale, there's consistent relationships, and so it's very interesting but sometimes challenging to bring some of those models across. And maybe, maybe what we'll see is the demise of some of the cottage industry as it gets converted to something that looks more like a consolidated and scale operation that better suits a $10 trillion opportunity. That sounds like an industrial revolution. Yeah, a complete <laughs> reshaping. Mm. Um, let me follow up that question about what we can learn from other industrial sectors with uh, a slightly bolder question, if I may, uh, that's addressed to everyone on the panel. Um, we've all known for, for a long time we can learn a lot from these other sectors, for sure. But what can these other sectors learn from the construction industry? Ooh, I didn't expect that silence. No, no I'm, I'm holding back. Well. <laughs> I don't want to dominate. I'm holding back. Well, I think the one thing that the design profession and the mm. construction professions have to do well is context, right? We don't create a product that's for anywhere. We have to actually resolve products that are of a place, that meet a market, that are very, very local often in terms of the solution. And sometimes the better they deal with context, the better the architecture, the better result for the customer. Uh, we've seen the failure of addressing context in the project home market. You can't... Well, you can roll out standard homes, but they don't necessarily deal with climate particularly well because they're not thinking about orientation, for example. So I think one thing our industry has done well for millennia is it's been very agile at dealing with context and localization, and that's not always been true of some of the more advanced manufacturing sectors. Gary? Mm -hmm. Well, I, it made me reflect a little bit, and I know you and I have talked a little bit about this before, around um, you know, research and development and um, how we are seen within the academic world. Um, we, we cluster around what's called the built environment. You know, and we have exceptional qualities in being able to bring a number of different disciplines together. And I think it speaks to you know, the complex problems you know, that you're talking about. Um, we do that, but we often don't really talk about how we do that and how we do that really well. So other academic disciplines tend to be very deep and um, narrow, uh -huh. narrower. Uh, we are often, when I go to Canberra, <laughs> um, we are often, um, you know, quite broad with our our uh, particular research. So we have a range of disciplines that come together um, in, in an interdisciplinary way. And mm. I think that's a really positive part of our sector because um, if you can crack that, you actually start to solve some of the bigger complex problems mm. that we have because they have all of those different facets to them and many more. Andrew, you said you were holding back there. Well, I'm going to agree with Daryl completely, but I'd use the word customisation because it's not universal, but there is uh, about the best examples you could find in the building and construction industry about customisation to customer need when someone can afford to pay it. But mm. that, I think that's where 
you get, and the, when, and the manufacturing sectors transformed fundamentally from where it was in the 50s and 60s, which was the mass production area. Mm. Today it's about mass customization and customization at an affordable price. And that's where I think the evolution will be in building. But the, the, the thing that industries can learn, food and agribusiness as an example, is learning about customization and the importance that it, you know, that that, that gives. Because in the end, that's the play for Australia. Yeah. Because our cost structure is generally high in world terms. Mm -hmm. So we have to compete at the high value end. And working out where you compete and how you innovate to achieve that is an important realisation, back to that mindset point. But customisation, I think, is a real plus. Mm. And uh, Anna, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. We've been talking uh, in the lab over the last two days about what value um, our discipline... Uh, we're all trained as architects, even though many of us... Uh, don't necessarily work as pure design architects anymore. But um, what do you think that these other sectors might learn from our experiences in, in building? Well, I, I was actually thinking um, chaos management. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yes. Well, actually, recently we, uh, I, I had, a, have a, had a friend who was doing a PhD study in, in negotiation in how do you say, um, socially challenged uh, families. And he was actually looking into the construction industry and how we organize um, and, uh, how do you say, and solve very critical or difficult uh, problems. So it's about negotiation and about, um, at least in most, uh, how do you say, uh, projects or construction problems, things are solved. It may be expensive, people may not like each other afterwards, but, uh, but there will be a building in the end. And, um, <laughs> and this whole sort of mindset that everyone is sort of geared in order to find ways of making this happen mm -hmm. in one way or the other. I think that if, I mean, if we sort of looked into that as, as, a, as a positive driver within the, within the sector, yeah. I think that could actually be something we could brand ourselves so, on, sounds on good in, in a different way. It's perhaps the original version of agile management. It could be, yeah. maybe, yep. Um, I want to just uh, change tack for a while because I know we've spent quite a bit of time talking about innovation and the industry structure and things like that to something that came up a couple of times in your big problems at the beginning, which was this question around waste um, and particularly in its relationship with uh, questions around sustainability. Uh, Daryl, I know you've spoken a lot uh, in a lot of our meetings previously about what you see as waste in the industry, and, and by waste I mean not just offcuts of bits of timber that go into the skip at the end of the day, but all kinds of waste. Perhaps I could ask you to talk about that a little bit longer. Uh, it's dangerous asking me to talk about that because I get a bit worked up and passionate. I think um, you know when people start examining the topic of waste and what it really is about, uh, it. it it suddenly hits you that you're surrounded by it in the construction process and in the design process, and it's you know the waste of human resources, the the waste of overprocessing, the waste of inventory, and all those things that you know we talk about in a lean in a lean manufacturing context. Uh, you know, anecdote from one of our construction sites. And I'd like to think we did a reasonable job of managing our projects, but walking through one in the U.S. last year and. There was, a, there was a lot of inventory on the ground and the question to the uh, very proud site manager was, well, who's paying for all this inventory that's sitting here? There's a lot of stuff on the ground. Mm. Oh, it's not my problem. It's the uh, subbies problem. 
So there's a failure to connect the fact that who's paying the subbies bills, ultimately the client is. So the fact that all this inventory is sitting there subject to damage, theft, multiple movements because it's in the wrong place, loss, etc. Someone foots the bill for all of that, but the industry is completely inured to the fact that that waste is there in the first place. And it's there because, you know, it's too complex to order the materials to arrive on the right day to install them, apparently, yeah. because that's the paradigm we're trapped tra in. I think that's what you're talking about, when you need to change mm. your mindset about process and what you're trying to deliver. And if you're really focused on delivering a product for the customer that's all about value add, and not about building industry practices and getting more materials delivered to the site just in case you need them, just when you need them. There's a lot of things to address and rethink, which brings me back to the issue of culture, that you've got people standing in the way of some of these changes because either they don't see them or they're not prepared to recognise there's a way to do it differently or they disagree that we should be focused on that value add to the customer. Yeah. And so... Um I interpret that as saying one way to deal with the question of waste is to eliminate it up front. Um, we've also spent, uh, again, uh, a, a good few sessions over the last one and a half days talking with Anna about uh, the work of her institute uh, up in Copenhagen, which has some very uh, interesting ideas about end-of-life uh, design for disassembly uh, reductions of waste and circular thinking. And perhaps I could ask you to talk about the question of waste and, and the broader question of sustainability in the building industry. Well, I, th I think from what, from what I hear you talking about, it's the waste problem in, how do you say, conventional construction on site, of course, is, is immense and very, very difficult to, to handle. But I think industrialized manufacturing sort of um, is part of the answer to this because to my knowledge, most of the um, manufacturing industries are very much concerned about having the full circle of reusing or at least um, recycling the, the, their waste uh, from, from the manufacturing processes. And I think if we could have moving some of the construction processes into the, into the factory uh, uh, setting, that could sort of solve part of the problem. But as for the circular thinking in terms of um, looking at material metabolism, if we could call it that for a second, in the construction industry. It has to be not, not looked as, um, what's it called, life end um, scenarios, but life cycle. It has to be sort of reborn in a, in a secondary or third or fourth use in, in, in construction or in building or in other industries. And these sort of scenarios, of course, we, it's, it's fairly new to, at least the Danish construction industry is not that familiar with that sort of thinking yet. But there's several initiatives um, uh, governmentally in order to, to address this because it's part of European policies that we have to solve our waste problem across various industries in, in Europe at this point. Yeah. And having reconsidered it just traveling here, I was thinking, why is this such a big policy issue? It's, it's partly because, of course, we want to take care of the environment and all these, all these sort of good things, but it also has to do with the fact that Many of the European um, um, manufacturers um, or, I'd say, property owners, they, they start to realize that there's a material scarcity uh, globally. So it's also about harvesting and keeping mm. some of the high-end materials and uh, technological products, um, you could say, in-house. So this whole, this whole idea of sort of 
holding on to the value, um, not only the material value in itself, but also if you have a high-end product that it's not being taken apart, but it could be used almost one-to-one -one in a second or third um, building construction. That's the best way to sort of um, keep the value intact. It is frightening to think that you know we are making more buildings today than probably we've ever made at any point in, in history in the, in the past and that almost all of the buildings that we will make will land in one giant skip at the end and it's also hard to think of any, under, in, any other industry, I should say, that would deem that uh, acceptable. Um, I just want to keep on the sustainability uh, tack just for a, a little bit longer. Um, Kerry, in your work and thinking specifically about the way that you've focused on technology and introduction of different technologies into the construction centre and particularly around buildings, um, how has that issue of sustainability played out for you? If I think of um, the five major case studies that um, I explored just recently in the linkage project, you know, each of those case studies had a different driver. So, um, you know, for some it was about cost, but there was one particularly interesting um, uh, off-site manufacturing uh, scenario down in Tasmania, which the whole business model was actually around creating quality and sustainable um, housing. So yeah. high quality and highly sustainable. And the... Um, approach was that this is not going to be a house or the houses are not going to be for everyone but we will s seek out clients and seek out customers who value that yeah. so um, and and it wasn't high-end cost all the time although they had a range but um, it it speaks to the fact that we that there are those business models out there and that it was a, a very successful example. A small cluster of firms, you know, in near Launceston who were able to make a very, very successful um, business model out of that. So it's possible um, to achieve some of these um, challenges or solve some of these challenges. Um, but the other part that often... Um, I come across in my work around adoption of new technologies is the return on investment. Mm -hmm. So everything comes back down to the cost, you know, and a lot of times it's, um, it, it is really the driver for the change, um, yeah. So okay. that, that's one of the challenges and the hurdles that we have to get over as well, the markets and the size of the markets. How, how big an issue in many of the other manufacturing industries that you work with on a daily basis, Andrew, is this issue of circular thinking and end of life? Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's big. From two, and the reason I'm pausing is from two perspectives. So we've got a, there's a Brisbane-based business that makes baby bottles and drinking cups for infants that's bringing all of their manufacturing back from China because Mothers are concerned as to the way in which and the componentry that's been used and the materials that have been used in, in the first cycle of manufacture. And the saving through lower cost labour per bottle is not, not equal to the 
differential value in terms of safety thinking like batch control in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 there is interest in many parts of manufacturing in the, um, the history and the traceability of the materials. Yeah. We have a second project with a company called Dresden Optics which is an amazing company that said we, we, we're going to use a standardised frame design, Zeiss lenses according to you, the prescription that we'll assess you and you come back after 20 minutes and you've got your glasses and basically you pick the front frames and the side and the things and basically if you have uh, on Medicare I think in some cases it will cost you $6 for a pair of glasses with Zeiss lenses and if you have health insurance it will cost you zero. And they are now in a number of countries around the world. They have a project that we are co-funding with them to reclaim polyethylene from fishing nets that have been discarded in oceans. And customers are interested in the material that goes into those glasses. And what we're working with them on is, uh, or is the material science to be able to reclaim that material to give it a second life. And so I think there is enough sensitivity in customer land on this point to say this is a potential, something that could be leveraged. Yeah. And therefore, and I know my background in the, in the IT industry, the, the return of IT materials is a, not only a mandated requirement, but a customer expectation that says, I buy this from you, I'm expecting you will reclaim it and you will reclaim metals and materials from this. Uh, and dispose of those that can't be reclaimed in an appropriate way. And so I've, I've, I've got many examples of how important this is, yeah. but I think, the, I think there's customer engagement on this topic yeah. and serious customer engagement. Did you want to say something to that, Karen? No, I know. Okay. I uh, wanted to... We're, we're coming to the end of the discussion period here, but I just wanted to uh, briefly, by way of the issue around demographic change, um, urbanisation, this sort of population growth issue that we're, we're talking about, particularly um, ageing populations and some of the issues associated with that in building. Um, Daryl, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how, from, a, from, a, from an industry point of view, how big is this problem for you uh, in the industry and, and, and how do you see yourself dealing with it, if at all? I don't see it as a problem. I see it as the most massive of opportunities. Uh, I think um, you, know, you look at the stats, and I'm fond of quoting United um, Nations population forecasts on movement to urban centres, and it sort of tells us we need something in the order of 1,100 buildings per day to meet residential demand around the world. Uh, I've got no idea what our industry delivers worldwide, but I would be pretty confident it's a long way below 1,100 per have day. To be, it? Yeah. yeah. Probably not even a thousand per day. So, uh, if you look at that and the aging population issue, we've we've got a massive opportunity in front of us. It's a great reason to invest. It's a great reason to think about an industrial revolution for our industry. Yeah. Uh, all the all the levers for for change are there. Yep. Well, that's great. I think Matthew, there's at the other end of the lifestyle life cycle, amongst young people, is there is an established transformation happening are, are challenging the need to own things. And so the pay, payment of subscription for use in many aspects of life, getting now to cars and, and car sharing, uh, where people don't feel like they have to have a seller and buy a case, 
or even by the bottle because they want to buy something by the glass in the equivalent in a restaurant. And I think the subscription model is one of the things that I don't think gets a lot of oxygen in general discussion. And people saying, well, look at housing affordability and will people be able to own their own home in Australia? I don't know that... I know, I know a lot of young people who say, I will never own a car because I'll either Uber oh. or I'll use car sharing or whatever because it's better for me. Many are saying, I never drive, I get a licence because I'll rely on Uber and ride sharing. But I think the subscription model is also changing. And again, to, in terms of trying to guard ourselves against trying to solve the same problems in the same way all the time, is we have to look at these different consumption models. Because if you're in a build to rent or a build to subscribe scenario in, oh. the, in the construction industry, I think there's another thing. And that could well be a component of the, of the business model that says, now I've got an interesting and a different, because I've got a whole of life view, and the manufacture part of the construction, and then the life could be, again, part of it. So I, I think there's enormous opportunity here, Great. but challenging in realising. Yes. Um, in the beginning, we uh, spoke about the, the three biggest challenges for the future of building that uh, I asked all of you to submit uh, in advance of the session tonight. And we had you start with the biggest problem right now. So I'd just like to go around the panellists and, and, and ask you for these uh, kinds of, um, I guess, summing up uh, comments, if you like, um, by selecting one of your three major challenges in, uh, of the future and just describing that a little bit for the audience. Kerry, can I start with you? Yeah. Um, I know we've talked about it quite a bit around, or I have, um, around adoption of new technologies. And that's, you know, typically uh, hindered by the industry structure and yeah. cultural and behavioural characteristics. Um, and I suppose for me it's how can we develop different collaborative practice models around that to make change. Um, leading on from that, how do we develop different ways of, of training our new workforce um, and, and opening up their eyes to change management, leadership, problem solving, uh, you know, shared goals and norms, a whole range of different mindsets around how do we approach the problems of the building industry. Okay. Andrew? I, I knew that Kerry would say that's why I had to look at my notes and I had to pick another I one. Know. But I, <laughs> I agree know. totally with Kerry on We're that. We're trying to totally disagree, on that one. but we... <laughs> <laughs> no, totally anyway. on that, I agree. Uh, I, I think... <laughs> The, the, from what we've seen from manufacturing and the transformation that's got there, this thing that manufacturing is not just production. Oh. And I think that's... If I, I, I'm going to reread the book, Matthew, in the context of only that, because I think that the amnesia is we've got to get... We're doing prefabrication to be value-added building, building products that I'm going to then do something with, rather than saying I go from design, inbound logistics, production, outbound logistics, marketing, sales and service. And the value added in the manufacturing industry is at the two ends. It's not in production. So I've got to go to where the value is, so it's in design and it's in service. Uh -huh. And if we look at that model, I think that, that, that's the mindset that says let, this is a, it's a different solution or a different realisation path to the same opportunity. I, I think that's, that to me is 
something that really should be really is worth looking at. And I, I have to say, anyone who hasn't seen Andrew's smiley face graph that shows us where value is in manufacturing in Australia really should get a look at it and ask Andrew. It's not to mine. It's it. actually was developed by the OECD. But okay, uh, <laughs> but we we, we I love attribute it. it. We to do you. love it. Yeah, uh, Anna, if I could ask you for your uh, challenge of the future. Yeah, and this is like a typical architectural answer because it's sort of... Uh, <laughs> Good. You, you, how should I say? I'm sort of addressing several aspects at the yep. same time because I think they're, uh, how do you say, deeply connected. Um, as far as I remember, I was addressing the fact of the climate changes and the need for CO2, mm -hmm. low emission construction, um, at, at a large scale, um, how should I say, uh, production scheme uh, across the world. And then the, this whole idea about circular economy or circular thinking. And finally, how does that also sort of tap into an, what are the consequences when we do go down that track in terms of the building culture um, and the architectural quality across various cultural um, preferences and um, different climate zones and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, how to wrap that up uh, quickly. Um, I, I believe that this whole idea of, of the climate changes has, has now been, I th also in Denmark over the summer, we've had three months of, no, of, of, of pure sun and no rain. And I, I think for the first time, you see head titles in the newspaper and, and, the, and the TV shows or uh, news at night that, um, that this, is a, this is a growing problem, a growing attention among regular people. Um, so there will be a demand for new ways of thinking, construction, new way of, of, developing, of developing houses and homes, um, urban, um, urban settlements in general. But maybe we should then, because we keep t talking about economy as, which is actually, it's very convenient because it's, so, it's, it's, it's fairly abstract, that it sort of covers all different kinds of values and, and how do you say, ways of, um, how do you say, assets that we sort of, dealing with in, in our lives. But if we start thinking about CO2 as a, as a, as a sort of economy, you, we do that already to some extent, but actually bring it so much further into the way of having like CO2 quotas in, in terms that we maybe, it, it may seem very restrictive, but maybe that the construction industry has, has a limit. At this point, everyone acts as if there are no limits. And there is a limit. Yeah. We know there's a limit. And we simply have to address that. And we simply have to act in accordance to that. And in order to do that, we have to start saying, okay, okay as, a, as a single uh, global citizen, I maybe only have, I don't know, one ton of CO2 to spend every year. In the case I want to use that as an, as an uh, investment in my, as, as you were just mentioning, this whole, mm. um, what's it called? Linden, Linden uh, no, leasing. Sort yeah, of like a leasing subscription paradigm. That could be one way to go, but it, but it's, but it simply also has to be new ways of manufacturing and, and new ways of thinking manufacturing in, in, in the end. And I think that's sort of it, I'm talking about a new way or, or a new paradigm that has to be developed or will come, I think, in one way or the other. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, for me, Matthew, I think we, we touched on it tonight, but we didn't delve too deep into it, and that's customer centricity. Um, you know, uh, we, and I say this as a reformed architect and a reformed builder um, <laughs> who ended up on the dark side in development, but um, you know, we're, we're an amazingly <laughs> arrogant industry at times. We, we get very consumed by what we're about, and the industry sort of 
is the industry for itself as opposed to um, serving a customer, which is kind of bizarre and so outmoded when we live in the age of experience. I mean, 20 years ago, if you went to the bank, you had to grit your teeth and deal with the fact you'd stand in a queue and go through some sort of horrible customer experience. And even the banks have figured out how to give us great customer service on apps and via our phones. So our industry needs to, th to think about this and start shifting its focus toward what it's doing for its customers, whatever shape or form those customers may take. You know, in some respects, the environment is another customer of the industry and how we serve that. But we are so far from thinking about the age of experience for built form as a product. There is so much to be done and so, op so much opportunity to take from that. I'd really like to see the industry rethink and reshape itself around the customer. Thank you, Darren. That's a really good reflection. Um, one thing that I've learned from this uh, panel discussion tonight is that this could go on for quite some time. Uh, but those flipping chairs are getting more and more frequent uh, <laughs> uh, the longer we go. And we've already probably outstayed our welcome. And so just in closing, I'd like to uh, get some quick-fire final snapshots from our panellists here uh, around the question of if we all meet again in 10 years from now, what will have changed in the building industry? Kerry? Um, if anything. If anything, yeah. <laughs> building information modelling would be uh, normal business processes. It wouldn't be such a mystery. Um, I think the crazy sort of stuff I'm looking at now around collaborative robotics um, with my colleagues at University of Sydney, <laughs> um, there might be a market for that. Uh, so the way we actually build on site might be very, very different. Um, perhaps our teaching models might have changed somewhat. Um, and I'll give a plug for my colleagues in the audience. So new architecture program led by Chris um, out at Western Sydney and uh, our Centre for Smart Modern Construction, which David Chandler is, is uh, leading up as well. So I think the way that we interact and the way that we interact with uh, uh, industry might change as well. So they're the things, and I would be drinking champagne in 10 years' time, celebrating my retirement, I, I think. I'm going to be drinking champagne in about five minutes' time, so okay. uh, I hope you'll join me tonight. Not my retirement, yet. <laughs> Andrew? I, 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 uh, well, I, I hope we crack it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I hope Australia cracks it. And what does that mean? Is I, I hope that because we're smaller in number of people, and we're more connected because people here know others in the audience, whether they're from Sydney or Western Sydney or whatever they're from, that, that we actually find a way to actually crack it. We end up with enterprises that are doing this stuff successfully on a global scale. Mm -hmm. I hope we've cracked it. So I, I don't know what we will have done in 10 years, but my dream, my vision for that is that we actually say, you know what, we have, we're the only country that has, maybe Denmark can do it actually, yeah. but maybe, <laughs> maybe Denmark can. can. We've got the scale that is, because the, the, in the digital world, the tyranny of distance is gone. Yeah. And so we can export a lot of the technology here in electrons, and therefore we have the scale to be able to crack it, and I hope we crack it. And I, I, I think we can do it. I, I, I see no reason why we can't do it. But it's going to require mindset. It's going to require leading companies to take the way. And I've, I'm a great believer in what we see. Successful is the government can't solve this for us. 
companies have, and innovative and entrepreneurs have to create an idea and there's a role for the government to accelerate what those people are doing because there's risk involved. But the payoff here, I, I don't think there's another opportunity that's bigger. You want a moonshot? This is it. Thanks, Andrew. Anna. Well, actually, uh, you may have, have noticed already that I'm very much concerned about the environmental issues and the sustainability um, aspects of construction. And, um, and in one way, you, you could be very pessimistic and say, well, the future, what's that going to... I mean, do we have any ways to sort of um, engage in that and, and come up with different um, solutions in the future? But at the same time, I think when we were overcoming the world wars of Europe way back and we were developing new countries such as Australia and, um, and the US, uh, the concrete industry was, I mean, 200 years ago, it didn't exist. So we as humans, I believe that we do find, we do find the answers to the problems we are facing or solutions to the problems we are facing in different ways. And I, I do not doubt that we have to come up with more environmentally sound and um, CO2 uh, reduced a solution in the future. And I, I, I do believe we can find ways to, to, um, to solve that. But we have to speed up very, very yeah. quickly. And it may be, as, as, as you just mentioned, these various tracks by which we should use. Because I think the main, as I mentioned before, the chaos management, I think one of our main, main um, competencies within the construction industry and among architects is actually that we can navigate in chaos. But, and we just have to select new ways of, um, th how do you say, thinking, principles for construction, material use, and way to develop, uh, how do you say, high-end and mass-produced um, uh, construction solutions. So Thank you, Anna. Thank you. So, Daryl, last but not least to you, if we meet again in 10 years from now, what will have changed? Uh, I'm an optimist. I think a transformation will be underway. It probably won't be as transformed as I'd like, but it'll definitely be underway. And so, as you've heard me say before, uh, there's a lot of people talking about Industry 4.0, and the construction sector managed to miss the first three industrial revolutions quite nicely. Mm, that's true. And that's okay, because now there's a great opportunity to leapfrog and jump ahead, and as Andrew says, you can export electrons, so this is a very good place to be in. And I think the measure for me of that transformation will be that people have moved beyond thinking about prefabrication as a dirty word and a bad product and we'll be talking about how great it is to own a manufactured home or work in a manufactured building because it'll be at the quality end of the market and it'll deliver to what customers are looking for. Great, great. And I'm, I'm very happy to say that uh, I think I agree with everyone here in their optimism. I think uh, if is probably one of uh, the points on the, the job description to be a researcher. If you're not optimistic about the future, you're in the wrong game. So I feel very at home here tonight. I feel uh, that we've made and covered some really good ground. Um, but I'd like to end it here now and uh, for you guys to join me in thanking our wonderful panellists for the discussion tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.